representative democracy has to be about generation, life experience, all these things that go into you being able to say, I get it with more and more people. Elizabeth Brown was elected to Columbus City Council in 2015 and re-elected in 2019. In addition, Brown is the executive director of the Ohio Women's Public Policy Network. Brown and her husband, Patrick, live in Columbus's Victorian Village neighborhood, along with their children, Carolyn, Russell, and Marybelle. Her goal on council is to create broad-based prosperity that levels the playing field for every family in Columbus. Among other accomplishments in support of this goal, she led the implementation of a comprehensive paid family leave policy for city employees, helped establish a $15 per hour minimum wage for city job incentives and new affordable housing requirements for city housing incentives, and launched the Right to Recover program, which offers low-income workers who contract COVID-19 one-time emergency financial relief to help them take time off of work, isolate, and recover before returning to their job. All right, we're here today on the Gravity Podcast with Liz Brown. Liz, it's great to have you here. It's uh, fun to, to kind of maybe transition our typical engagement on our group text to um, this kind of a format, but it's great to see you and great to have you here on the podcast. Great to see you too, Brett, virtually, of course, but um, it's really good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, good. So, you know, we were just talking a little bit before we got started as to why you and and kind of, you know, what, what you know, is it about um, your story that, you know, we should share with the listeners? And I'm just impressed with what you're doing. And we've known each other a long time now. I've watched kind of not just you, and, and uh, but other members of city council really lead and lead with so much passion around current issues, um, things that, you know, I think really need to be uh, talked about, brought to the forefront. You know, it, it's it's been fun for me to have, you know, what I'll consider to be friends and and contemporaries really leading. And so, you know, from that standpoint, I think, you know, it's 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 I'm curious to kind of hear how did you get to that point, right? What's the journey to that? Uh cuz it's it's really I think inspiring to watch. Um, I'm, I know you might not kind of own that as much as as I want you to, but it it really is to to watch really young passionate people with in positions of power, you know, making a difference in the community. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, it really, it means a lot uh, coming from you. I, you know, I think that it's interesting when you think about government service, it takes a boldness and sort of willingness to put yourself out there in order to campaign um, and, and win a position in government. Um, campaigning for anyone who's ever been a part of a campaign, if you volunteered to knock on doors or worked with a candidate up close, you understand how much hard work goes into it. And you have to be really open to talking to people and hearing from people and listening and then selling yourself, right? I mean, it's, it's inherently self-promotional. All of that can be a little awkward, but you get through it because there's, you know, the end goal to actually serve. And then I found, you know, once I got through that campaign process and I was actually on city council, it actually takes a little while to, even after you've done something really hard and won, to fully um, sit with your confidence that you can 
do the job, that your voice is as important as, you know, more experienced people around you. Because I'll just speak for City Hall. That's the only place I've ever served. When I was new to it, I was the newbie, right? There were uh, veteran council members uh, uh, who were already there. And a lot of civil servants in City Hall and in the city that really um, had a record I admire, right? They'd put in tons of years of service. And here I was saying, well, wait, I want to do it differently. Do, am, am I allowed to ask to do something differently, right? Like who, who am I to sort of get in there and try, try to push a different direction? So I do, do think it takes a little bit to get your sea legs. And then I have in the last few years, um, I have a lot more confidence in sort of demonstrating leadership. And I don't mean to overblow my own leadership. I really mean this kind of broadly mm-hmm. about elected officials in general, mm-hmm. that there, there is a process to kind of owning that leadership and new direction um, that you may want to take things. Yeah. And, and you know, we, I want to go back to the beginning as to how you arrived where you are. And, and we'll do that. But as long as we're talking about it, I was actually having this conversation this morning. I just got back from Austin, Texas, where my son is in school. And uh, somebody asked me if, if Matthew McConaughey was really seriously making a run at governor. And, you know, my son had said that like the early polling suggests he's like way ahead. <laughs> so it's an interesting <laughs> thing, right? So the conversation that we had this morning was well, wh- what's to say? that somebody who doesn't have the typical political resume, right? So maybe that's background and moving up through political positions, or um, maybe in the past you needed to go to law school or some sort of, right, like traditional path into politics. What's to say that somebody coming at it from a different experience, from a different angle, can't be maybe even more effective, right? And, and in some ways, I think of you and, and Shannon and, and other young uh, members of council as, as people that are coming at it from a different perspective, right? Because of your, your youth and maybe, I, I mean, you know, I think you've both grown up in, in your case, you know, the two of you in particular, around politics, Right. And and maybe, you know, in what would appear to be a more traditional sense, but you arrived at a position of power at a pretty young age. And I and I I've always been attracted to just the kind of perspective that you're coming at because of your youth, because of your, I don't know, um, experience. I don't know. Maybe maybe there's I don't know if there's something to that or not from your perspective. I think there is, and I will I will give you an example from a, a, a colleague, not on city council, but some, someone else similarly situated to me in terms of time in our lives. So I I I won my race for city council um, right after I'd had my first child. So that means my really my entire six years on Columbus City Council, with the exception of a few months. I've been either pregnant or breastfeeding, <laughs> right? Like I've been in these early motherhood stages with two of my three children, with all three children, basically. And I, I do think that um, 
for a long time, especially women were not looked at as being ready for office until they had reared children. Men were sort of given a pass um, that you can have a young family and, and be elected. But women, um, it was a little bit harder uh, to, to feel, not necessarily from the voters, but also sometimes just from the quote powers that be. And, you know, because of that, a colleague of mine who's, again, similarly situated, different, different branch of government, but she told me that she was having some conversations with some older um, men, male colleagues of hers, who had no concept for the idea of the cost of childcare. You know, that they, they really were thinking about a family's budget and they said something like the car payment being the second most expensive thing a family faces after um, uh, a mortgage or rent, which is just completely wrong. I mean, completely mm-hmm. wrong. That the only, I mean, I don't think that's right on a lot of levels, but um, certainly the only time it, it could be is if whoever is caring for your child doesn't work and that's free, right? <laughs> and so just having um, uh, my experience with being a mother of young children, first and foremost, is um, I think part of representative democracy. Representative democracy isn't just about the demographics that you that you hold, although getting more women and especially more women of color and people of color into office is important. It's also about life experience. Representative democracy has to be about generation, life experience, all these things that go into you being able to say, I get it with more and more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of bringing your life experience to your work no matter what you do, right? I mean, that's been kind of the thing for me that has worked the best is whenever I see a problem in my own life or whenever I am struggling with something of any magnitude, and a lot of times they're little things, uh, you can bring that into the work as uh, a place to try to solve problems that you're not alone, right? So, you know, that kind of experience you just described, you know, there are many people out there sharing that experience. It can sound, and you don't sound this way, but sometimes I am sensitive to sounding a bit kind of like selfish or self-involved when I say like, I have problems, I want to solve them. It's it's just that I know they're a reflection of a broader issue. Yeah. And you know, you're I, not the only one. Right. You know, you're not yeah. the only one. So let's talk about your life experience. Let's let's go back to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about kind of your you know early childhood, kind of what that environment was like for you, um, your family, et cetera. Yeah. So um, I was born in Columbus. I was born in Berwick. Um, my parents divorced when I was young. I was uh, not even three yet when they separated. Um, so my older sister Emily um, and I we um, were the two children that my parents had before they split. And, uh, you know, because of that, I, I, it's interesting. So you never look back and think, oh, that's great that my parents got divorced, right? Like that's just not what your instincts would tell you. However, I am a glass half full kind of person. And, um, you know, I think about the events that occurred because they divorced. First and foremost, there was a lot of moving around when I was little, you know, Berwick to Mary side to Hilltop, um, uh, a little bit of time at Harrison West, kind of a little bit all over. Ultimately, my mom remarried and, and moved out to Licking County. And then my dad um, moved back up north where he was, was born and grew up. He grew up in Mansfield. He moved up to Lorraine. 
so yeah, there was a lot of moving around. Maybe that wasn't awesome. But then I got to have this childhood in kind of two places. And I got to know two distinct kinds of Ohio. And I actually think that's a blessing. I also gained step-siblings and half-siblings from that experience. And then the most important thing I think I gained, and again, this is a weird thing to say glass half full about your parents splitting up, but I just got to say, I have never in my whole life, because I don't remember much before I was three years old, functioned, had a relationship with my parents as a unit, right? I've never had like a parental unit. I've had a mom and I've had a dad and I have independent relationships with each of them. Those independent relationships have been the central blessing in my life. They have loved me. They have made me feel secure. They have expanded the way I think. They have challenged me and supported me. And I actually think a core component of my confidence comes from the fact that it was two separate relationships. I have friendships with each of my parents. And again, I know it sounds weird, but there is this blessing in, I think, you know, growing who I was um, because of that, you know, early childhood, quote, instability that's right up there on the ACEs score for something mm-hmm. traumatic, right? But but um, I'm so lucky to have these two parents that um, just loved me and supported yeah. me at every turn. Well, that, that I, I've kind of, this is an interesting one because, um, you know, I, I also uh, come from a divorced family. My parents were divorced when I was 10. Um, and I also have landed at a place that is of tremendous gratitude for uh, the experience that I've had in life. You know, like like you, I've gained half siblings. I've gained uh, another father. I've you know moved. I you know have just you know grown. I've been through you know things that maybe you know people who don't have that experience um, you know have haven't had and. And it's and I look at it as a blessing. It has been very much a blessing in my life. So it's not that that that's strange. What what I think is kind of um, unique in doing this podcast. There's a theme that's emerged really, which is people have kind of one of two different childhoods. One is um, some sort of traumatic experience, and the other is usually a unconditionally loving experience. And you know, you're describing what sounds like an unconditionally loving experience, even though, like you said, you know, a divorce for a young child can be traumatic. Mm-hmm. Now, so so what I'm curious about is the 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 blessing piece, the gratitude. Is that something that comes now as an adult or somewhere, you know, in your early adulthood? How, how, how was the experience as a kid? You know, were you, were you too young to know any different or was there some sense of this is hard, this is tough, this is struggling, we're moving around a lot? What was the experience like, you know, when you were young? That's a great question um, and very perceptive because when I was young, I would have told you, you know, that I hated that they were divorced. I mean, I, I don't know how many years of my childhood, every time there was a wishing well, I'd throw a penny in and wish my parents would get back together, mm-hmm. which is obviously unrealistic. And yet I still wished it every time, uh, kind of knowing it wouldn't happen. Um, as I became an adolescent, I was always frustrated that they lived so far apart 
you know, two and a half hours is not across the country, but to me, it felt far apart. Um, I'd have to make choices between, because uh, I went to school where my mom lived. I went to, you know, elementary through high school where my mom lived. And so I'd have to make choices between like the Friday night football game and getting to spend the weekend at my dad's. And I thought that was so unfair because I obviously wanted to do both. And so as a child, I was, I thought I'd, you know, really drawn a bad lottery ticket in, you know, being in a divorced family. I didn't have a lot of friends who had divorced parents or separated parents. And it really was, I think as an adult or maybe more in college that I recognized um, what I had gained from it. And ultimately, I mean, it's hard to say gain or, or, or that sounds a little weird what I had gained, but I think ultimately it's about what I had never lost. Like, yes, it, mm-hmm. it is too bad that I didn't have, you know, that I had to make those choices between the Friday night football game and my dad's um, house or, you know, that I couldn't have, you know, my dad home every every day when I came home from X or Y, you know, school thing um, or that I missed my mom on the weekends. Like all of that is, is, is true. It's not purely gained, but I didn't lose, right? I did not lose the love, the support, the, 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 the challenge, you know, the intellectually challenging way that they each interacted with us to spur our imaginations and creativity and ambitions. Mm-hmm. I didn't lose any of that. I just yeah. got two versions. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, this is really great because I've actually not heard somebody kind of describe it this way. And maybe it's a unique experience that, you know, you did have the separation of the family unit, which does, you know, come with the logistical challenges and the needs that, you know, aren't, um, you know, ideally met that, you know, you, you long for as a kid, but yet your parents really did stay very present in doing their independent jobs to the fullest so that you could you know, get the the needs that you that the children have. You know, love primarily. Um, so so, and I, and I think if if I'm right about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've I've I remember seeing your mother involved at uh, campaign events or you know uh, for your father. Yeah. That, that, you know, that it, it appears like the two of them have maintained. A, a very good relationship as well. Is that true? Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Not when I was a kid. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Please don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, they, again, it's like their, their ultimate argument was about time with us. Right. Mm-hmm. So like my dad always wanted more of it. My mom always wanted more of it. Like that's what they argued about. And, and there were arguments when I was a kid and I remember that. Yeah. Um, but it was never like, the arguments weren't about like, no, you got to take the kids. I'm too busy. Right. It was the opposite. So in some ways, like this love was at the center of even some strife. And then in adulthood, um, yeah, my mom has been very involved with my dad's um, campaigns and helpful. And they both are involved in my own campaigns. And, And that actually brings up an interesting point again about childhood experiences because of the divorce. So my, my dad has been in office since the time I was born. Um, he lost a re-election campaign in 1990. So there were a couple years where he taught at OSU instead of served, but then he got back into office. And because um, uh, my parents were, my dad was single. So when we were with him, 
we went to everything he did. We went to every campaign event. You know, sometimes we would go to Washington on the big healthcare vote in the 90s um, the, under the Clinton administration. They had votes over the weekend. So my dad, you know, flew us there to be with him during, because he wasn't going to give up a weekend. So what happened is I actually got a closer look at my dad's public service then maybe I would have gotten if he had had, you know, he and my mom had been married and there'd been kind of a divide and conquer strategy with childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I, I can draw a direct line from that to whether it's my ultimate career choice or whether it's um, the values that undergird that career choice and how I do this career. Mm-hmm. I got to see it up close. Yeah, very interesting. And, and again, kind of another reason we do this podcast is to kind of tug on these threads of like, well, look at you, you're, you know, like getting a front row seat to public life of service, you know, I mean, how does that not, you know, get kind of like even more embodied, you know, as, as a, as you go through your life, tell me a little bit about kind of the the part where you say that I wasn't always happy about my parents separating and and yet you know you've got this kind of love coming in at the same time so so what were you like as you start to kind of move into you know elementary high school you know middle school where what what's liz like as a result of all those kind of various things going on mm-hmm. like as a child yeah what were you into yeah. were you you know yeah. were you uh, yeah just what yeah. were you like my parents always talk about how I was a happy kid and I, I have memories of feeling like a happy kid. I, you know, I really was never interested in sports. Uh, my big sister was, and a lot of my friends were, so I had like, what really seriously, uh, I have a lot of childhood memories of being like traumatized to use the word totally mm-hmm. lightly, um, by, having to engage in athletics. Like it was just not my preference. Um, My five-year-old daughter, her pre-K just sent home a flyer about they're going to have a pre-K field day Mm -hmm. um, in a couple of weeks. And I was like, oh God, I hated field day. Like I I was experiencing it again. Uh, So I gravitated towards, um, I did do sports and ultimately found the confidence to just say, this isn't for me. Sometime Mm -hmm. in high school, I just stopped. Mm-hmm. I stopped track. I stopped volleyball. I said, this isn't for me. It's not helping me grow. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. building my confidence. And I focused entirely on kind of dorky stuff. I was, I loved the plays. I did the fall play and the spring play. I was in drama club. Uh, it gave me a ton of joy. I was in, you know, church choir, which I don't have a great singing voice, but again, it has that performative element. And I loved that. I helped start a mock trial team um, in high school. I loved uh, Latin club and and French club. So that was really where I think when I was being true to myself, what I ultimately um, gravitated towards. And I loved music as well. I played the piano for, gosh, like uh, uh, 13 years of lessons on the piano. And I was really good by the time I graduated high school. I uh, unfortunately didn't write, didn't regularly maintain the practice, and so I'm a little rusty now. But someday, <laughs> yeah. I plan to get back into it. Yeah, well, you've got your hands full, but but it'll it'll come back, I'm sure. So so you know, it's it that is uh, interesting, you know, that you were focused on kind of 
um, not not just the non-sports stuff, but you know that you're you're active in all the clubs. I mean, maybe there's some sort of uh, thread to tug on there that is you know you feeling active that you wanted to be kind of you know engaged in in some you know I don't know work. Is that is that true? I mean, was there any sense of this kind of experience that you were having? You know, being with your dad and kind of seeing that front row seat to service. You know, does that start to come in at all, like early, or are you mostly just kind of high school kid doing high school kid things? Well, I would say it, it did. It did come into play early through um, things like uh, when I started to help start the mock trial team. So I did mock trial as a freshman and then the mock trial team folded and a friend of mine, because the advisor left um, and a friend of mine decided we wanted to start it again. And so that was where I really loved kind of the debate side of mock trial. It's, it's a really great intellectual uh, activity for kids, but I, I would say that I really just wanted to when I was doing athletics, like I wasn't useful. I was mostly like sitting the bench or I wasn't very good, you know, at track. And so I didn't go to all the meets, you know, cause I wasn't called up for all the meets kind of thing. And I really wanted to be useful. I wanted to be additive to my community. And that is what I saw. Um, you know, I really felt my dad did a lot for our community, our state, our city. And his existence was really additive to the community. And my and my mother too, in a totally different line of work. Um, but I, I do think that that probably um, served as a foundation for some of the things I wanted to be active in. And what was your mother's line of work? So my mom is formally trained in social work and she's always focused on seniors. So now what she does is run a statewide association um, of area agencies on aging. Um, So they exist to help make sure seniors have access to home care. Um, We know what better health outcomes seniors have if they can uh, receive care in their home rather than sometimes they need an actual live-in facility like a nursing home, but as often as possible. And it's expensive. And so, um, you know, it's important that... um, uh, organizations like Area Agencies on Aging exist to help make sure low-income seniors can have those same um, possibilities for um, dignified care in their homes. Mm-hmm. And and when you're you know kind of in the debate world and and you're kind of you know starting these things, leading these things, I'm just curious. Like, are you actually thinking that someday you want to go into politics, or are you just feeling like you need to be of action, of service. I mean, at that point in your life, did you have a sense that you wanted to follow in your dad's footsteps that specifically? Or did you just kind of have that you know, combination of caring and, and wanting to be active from both of your parents? Yeah, I did not think I wanted to formally go into politics. I loved, I loved debating my peers in government class. Like I, I've always loved politics itself and and big ideas about how our society should be structured and what is justice and how do we pursue social justice and these these threads are are things that like my, across my entire family both sides are very important and always subjects at the dinner table all of that but myself I loved doing that and it was very stimulating to me but I also really loved writing that wasn't something that I brought up I loved writing poetry I loved writing short stories 
Um, and ultimately, really, especially in college, started enjoying um, journalism, like writing for our college magazine. And so I thought that I would um, write for a living, go work at a magazine or a newspaper. Um, didn't quite have the ambition to be a novelist because that's so hard, but you know, I uh, wasn't crossing it off the, the table. Um, but ultimately, that's what I thought I would pursue and then always do politics kind of extracurricularly. I guess is sort of how I thought of it. And it caught me by surprise when I changed my mind, but, but I did. And Mm -hmm. I'm really glad I did. Yeah. But you know, there's also this kind of really um, creative thread here too. That's part of who you are, you know, from whether it be the music um, or the writing, um, you know, talk a little bit about kind of the role that the, the arts or creativity um, you know, had in your life, you know, kind of as you, you know, have moved through it? Yeah. Well, I think the, the arts in general are um, an important thing to, I think, expose kids to and help them tap into their creative outlet because the arts help us, the way I think of it, the arts help us see how big the world can be. Like it expands our horizons to think about ideas, concepts, places that we can't imagine within our own experience. The arts more than anything else can, um, uh, you know, be really, I guess, transformative in in how we look at the world and, and conceive of what the world might be, which is why when we, you know, when I think about writers who have said the most about humanity and our possibilities, I usually think of creative writers. I think of people like Toni Morrison and James Baldwin and Langston Hughes. And we quote poetry to um, really demonstrate this higher level, I think, that humans can work to achieve. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's part of what, um, you know, the creativity of of writing brought me, something I think about a lot with my kids too, and Mm -hmm. wanting to tap into their creativity or nurture it. Mm. So tell me a little about, um, you know, this kind of time in college where you're studying journalism, you know, what, what's kind of your mindset at that point? And, and as you start to think about kind of going into career, you know, what happens? Yeah. So um, I had between high school and college, I took a gap year and I was an AmeriCorps member with city year. Um, uh, my older sister uh, there's a theme here. I just moved in next door to my older sister. And between high school and college, I chose the, ci- the city I was going to do AmeriCorps in based on where she was in college. So I've just been following her around my whole life. Um, <laughs> but she, um, I went to Philadelphia to do city year. And uh, that's an AmeriCorps program in the schools. So I was in a middle school um, in Northeast Philly and uh, worked with all kinds of kids. I was an assistant teacher essentially in um, three different classrooms and had some incredible experiences with kids and really saw up close and personal this inter- intersection between public policy and people's lives. I was still very dedicated to writing as a career, some kind of journalism. But I have to say that that was when the seed was planted, that maybe journalism wasn't going to happen for me because public policy was such an interest. And Mm -hmm. when I say intersection, I don't just mean um, what kind of education policy was written in Harrisburg, you know, for the state of Pennsylvania, like uh, textbooks and class sizes and things like that. Uh, building maintenance. I, I also mean housing policy, right? I mean, some of the kids I got very close to told me very real stories about why it was hard to learn that day. I mean, I would pull kids out if they were having behavior 
problems and walk them around the building. And I understood that, you know, having even having a very loving grandma, but having to separate from your your mom for a couple nights because of what was happening at home, either with her job or, you know, with the the rent payment um, or the neighborhood where they lived and, you know, spend a couple nights at grandma's, that's still hard for a kid. It's, it's uprooting and it makes it hard for them to learn the next day. Wage policies, housing policies, all of these things, I really think were planted in that year. And the last thing I'll touch on about it is it also taught me, it taught me, how I should feel when I went to bed at night and when I got up in the morning about what Mm. I was choosing to dedicate my time to. Mm. Like AmeriCorps taught me what it really feels like to be driven by passion. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately when I went into, I, um, I got a job in journalism after college and didn't have that feeling. It was Mm -hmm. super fun and I loved it, but it didn't have that passionate feeling that city or drove in me. And Mm -hmm. and so that year between high school and college was really formative for Mm -hmm. both of those reasons. Yeah, it is. It's so interesting because, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of, you know, passion and, and really using your life experience to inform your work. And, you know, I, I, couldn't agree more that it should be passion, that you know you should be able to love your work. That is how we spend a lot of our time, right? And, and so why would we not? And I had a similar experience where I, I actually had the opposite, opposite experience where I um, saw people who did not have that passion. That was kind of my first entree into the working world. And, and it made such an impact on me that, you know, I just couldn't tolerate that that's how people were living and going to spend most of their time. So, you know, that, the fact that you had that experience before you started working and then you went to work and, and realized it wasn't there is, is, is unique. So what happens then when you realize like, there's not the passion here that I know exists and you're working in journalism, what do you do? Well, um, it was 2008 when I realized the job I I had, I was at a magazine that I loved again and that I still read, but it just wasn't what I wanted it to be for me. It was 2008. I was living in New York City, um, working at this magazine and my home state was like ablaze with excitement over the Obama campaign and all these really cool local races. Democrats were trying to take back control of the Ohio House. Um, So I called not my dad, but someone else I knew in politics back here in Ohio to get like unbiased advice. My dad tends to be like, you can do anything. And so I needed somebody who wasn't my dad um, giving me advice. And and he said to me, you should, uh, you, you would, despite the fact you think you don't have experience, bring a lot to the table in a couple different roles, basically, and just told me to go for it and apply for them because that was the time that campaigns were staffing up. I mean, I did. I took a chance and I thought I, I actually thought I would um, maybe do that for a little bit and then come back to New York. And what I found is that same feeling of passion, going to bed with it, waking up with it, that I had found in City Year because I felt I was, my presence and my dedication was making a difference. It is an amazing thing to feel that like you've matched your purpose, that, you know, your effort is actually helpful to others and doing something and productive. And that's what I felt. And so I knew, okay, I'm going to stay in Ohio. I'm going to keep doing this because it feels exactly right. 
And, and so tell me, what was that? What was that kind of first entree in? So I was a campaign manager for a state rep race in kind of the eastern portion of Franklin County. And I was really doubtful that I could take on a campaign manager. You know, I had never worked professionally in politics. And that was where this contact with a, a key friend and, and mentor back in Ohio um, was so important because he demystified the role for me and said, you know what, I know that you're just, this would be your first paid job in politics, but here's what being a campaign manager for a state rep really looks like. And importantly, here's the support you would have. So there are all kinds of folks that you can call to help support you in a role like that. And I, once that was demystified for me, I did have the confidence to do it. And what it felt like, which I think was different from how I felt when I was um, um, working at this magazine, what it felt like, the experience is I was anticipating challenges and solving them. I was able to respond using my instincts and, and be mostly right about it. I was able to motivate people, to bring them to the table to help. Like all these things, I mean, I'm talking about a political campaign, but I think that goes for any line of work that a person is looking in. When you can do those kinds of things, it really resonates with who you are. And it, I think it, it channels your own passion for your work. And again, not unique to political campaigns, but that is where I found my ability to do those things. Yeah, it, it's, a you know, sometimes I get asked the question about how do you get into real estate development? You know, one of the things that I've kind of started to realize is that the way into anything is just doing it. And it's never as, and there's certain, certainly exceptions, you know, that you've got to be, you know, really trained for and studied, but it's never what I think we think it is in our minds, right? We have this kind of feeling about a title like campaign manager. Oh, well, you know, how, how are you camp? Well, you must've done that, you know, before. Well, what happens, you know, to the person who had never done it before and then ends up being the person that has, you start somewhere and you just do it. And, and I think there's maybe a undervaluing of our intuitive skills and, and, you know, and, and maybe this goes back to the beginning conversation we had around, the, who makes sense to be an effective politician today. The, the more that we can actually rely on our life experience, our intuitive skills, our thinking, right? Our, our, the people we surround ourselves with, um, the, the more effective you really can be, maybe more so than, than you think before you get into something like that you've, that you've not done before. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. That really resonates. And then and then you find that kind of match with with who you are and how your instincts develop and what kind of problems you love solving, right? Um, because I, I love to solve problems, but that doesn't mean I'd be very good at solving problems in real estate development like you do, right? Like I I love the the challenges um, that I have to to work through in this public policy space. That doesn't mean I'm good at it everywhere. But like once you find and you try those things um, and develop your skills, you grow and you know how to do better, be better, raise, you know, raise yourself up in that profession. Um, so it's not simply like, oh, jump in and be a CEO. There's, there's some work that has to, you know, you have to hone, but um, uh, when it feels right, I think you know it. Yeah. And, and I think that passion is really a big piece of it because, you know, as you say, I wouldn't be a good 
real estate developer. You know, I think that you probably would be actually if you wanted to be, you know, if you really, right. And that want is about the passion, you know, you're smart enough, you're capable enough. I know this business, you know, sure it's hard, but you know, I learned it. You could too. It's just that you have no interest in it, right? Right. It's the passion. That's exactly right. So, yeah. so tell me then, you know, what's the path from that campaign manager job to city council? Yeah. Um, so that that campaign job, as often happens, led to an opportunity on the official side um, to actually work in the state house in um, policy. And um, I started working, my, actually my job was in communications because I knew how to write and writing is a really valuable skill. Anyone out there who's listening to this, who's young and like figuring out what skills they should hone, like write, learn how to write. Everyone can use your skills if you know how to write. So anyway, I was hired because I could write well. And so I worked in the communications office. And what that meant is I was translating policy to things people could understand, pitching it to reporters, writing newsletters and releases on it for constituents and and residents. Um, And that was a great way to learn about all the policy being developed because I wasn't specializing. I was, you know, kind of had to be a generalist. And I ended up um, back, well, I also met my husband there, so that was a good move. But uh, that job really led to me working on the official side and then back on the campaign side and then back on the official side again. And and I did that throughout my 20s, really, before ultimately um, working for the city of Columbus on the official side. And really, that's where I realized that running for local office um, was something I very much wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I seeing it, uh, is is what made me want to do it. Yeah, and and before we kind of talk about you as a city councilwoman and in kind of today's times where things stand and kind of how you're leading, I am curious just kind of on the personal side as you talk about writing. Um, I'm wondering, do you write for yourself? You know, you mentioned your uh, piano skills are a little rusty. What what do you do? What should people know about how you take care of yourself when you're so focused on taking care of your children? You know, you have young kids, um, your you know your family, and um, and and serving this community. Where do you fit in? How how do you take care of yourself or what do you do that kind of charges your batteries? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't do enough for my, for myself. I mean, honestly, I, when I have a free moment, I think this is very typical of young parenthood, um, early parenthood. I don't really think of myself as that young, but early parenthood, um, when I have a free moment, I think about, okay, there, I see this giant mess on my dining room table right now. Like I got to pick that up. Right. I mean, it's just, you can't, it's hard to suppress those instincts to spend your free time on productivity. But one thing I've really tried to do, um, I'm really rusty as a creative writer. I still write, you know, non-creatively more, um, on subject matter, but, uh, I, I'm very rusty. Every once in a while, I'll be like nursing my baby and moved to like write a poem about how beautiful her face is. And I'll write something, I'll reread it the next day and be like, that's terrible. Um, so that's just kind of here, here and there, little things I, I try to do. But what I'm, 
becoming more disciplined about because I've noticed how much it helps me is reading before I turn the lights out at night. I always have a novel by my bed and I, I, it, it is good for my soul. I don't get through books as fast as I'd like to or as fast as I once did, but I will turn the lamp on, read. Sometimes it's 10 minutes before my eyelids are too heavy and then I'll put it down. Um, sometimes it's an hour and 10 minutes, but um, I, I do that really every, every night. Yeah. And, you know, I think your answer is that's a great, that's a great um, thing to, to modality to utilize for a lot of reasons. But, but the first part of the answer, which, you know, you said I, I could do better or I could do more or I'm not doing, you know, a lot right now, I think is also um, really important for people to hear because that's real. And, and I think it's okay. Yeah. Um, You know, my, my wife is really, been very clear about her focus on the kids, you know, while we've been raising our kids, you know, while they're under our roof and that, yeah. that a lot of things took a backseat um, to that, you know, and, um, and I, you know, personally put a lot of things, you know, in, in the backseat when it was growing my business. And, and sometimes, you know, you're at a stage in life where certain things have to take a backseat. Yep. Uh, and you know you, you got to be careful not to stay there too long because it's just not sustainable but you know l- let's be honest when you have young kids and you're working and you know life is a bit uh full just from that you might not be able to play piano as much as you'd like to and i think it's really important for people to know that and hear that 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 too is normal and and can be more than okay mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I agree because if we beat ourselves up for it on either end, too much self-care, not enough self-care, I mean, it, it's counterproductive. Just do what you can and, and, and check in with yourself on your, on your mental health. Like that's really the important piece. If you prioritize what your kids need for years over what you need, but that's what feels right, then when you check in yourself with yourself on your mental health, it's going to feel somewhat whole. Sure, a little imbalanced at times, but at least whole. But if you're feeling depleted, like half a person, all of those things, then like something does got to give and, and I, you know, prioritize it. Yeah. Now, now this last year uh, plus now, I guess, it has been a very uh, unique time on a lot of levels. And you've been in the middle of needing to lead this city as a result. You know, we've, we've seen kind of protest and we've seen you know serious issues on 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 the um, from the police force we've seen you know racial tension we've seen people out of work right we, we, this pandemic I mean it, it's been pretty nonstop and I've I've talked to some of your colleagues and I know how hard you guys have been working tell me a little bit about the past year. And, and really, you know, kind of where you sit today as, uh, you know, a, a, as an important leader in this city, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of what you've been through and, and kind of how you're feeling today. Yeah. Well, the last year has been, uh, part of the reason it's been so challenging is that the the ob- the obstacles the challenges weren't contained to just the professional front or just the personal front right and i and it, i am not saying anything 
unique. I think a lot of people feel that, that we were really pressed on the professional side to achieve. And then also had the kind of constraints we'd, we'd never really faced on the personal side. I would say what's a little different about being on, on city council during all of this is just the public facing elements of the, of the profession. Um, that, you know, what I say or what I fail to say is scrutinized, um, almost always what I do or what I fail to do lets people down or doesn't, right? You know, there is this sense of pressure that my choices and my actions can either help people or fail to help them. Um, And that is a responsibility that can weigh very heavily. Um, I, uh, there's so much to say on this, on this topic. Um, I, to get like super personal for a second, uh, if that's not weird. Um, no, not at all. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a little bit about um, when I uh, went into labor with my daughter in December. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was pregnant for most of the pandemic, um, and uh, I was since I'm over 35, I had to get induced the or I chose to get induced the day after her due date. So we we went into um, the hospital to for our appointment for my induction. And uh, we were talking about how important writing and creativity is to me. So I brought the novel I was reading at the time. It was my bedside novel. I thought, I'm going to read during labor and uh, it'll help me get through it. So we, my husband and I, like in between contractions, I read. Um, And then uh, I would have the contraction. And honestly, it helped me get to the other side that I knew I was going to get to resume my book. I had not done this in other labors, but it was very calming. And I was grateful that um, we made that decision to do that. Um, Then just a a few hours into labor, I I got a text from someone at um, City Hall informing me that Andre Hill had been um, shot and killed by Columbus police. And that the story was unfolding and we didn't know a lot yet. We were looking at body camera footage And that was escalating as my labor progressed. And there came a time, I I was, I mean, I was just, I was sad. I was confused. I was angry, like a lot of us. Um, I was attentive. I wanted to know what was happening. Um, I asked for support from my legislative aide to help funnel information so that I could get only what was most important and still progress in my labor. And um, then I got to a point where I couldn't anymore. Like I couldn't pay attention to what was happening anymore for this man, this father, this grandfather, whose life had been taken for no goddamn reason by someone employed by me, by you, by residents of this city to actually protect him. But I couldn't be there anymore. I was seven centimeters I mean, I needed to, I needed to get, I needed to hunker down. The novel wasn't cutting it, cutting it anymore. I couldn't focus on this. And then I had my baby and it was incredible. And the rest of the time in the hospital and for the first couple of weeks of her life, I mean, I was, it was a radical practice in how we balance our personal passions and obligations and love with these professional passions I have and that feeling of wanting to do and be there for the community. And I don't think that I did it particularly well, but I did everything I could. And I was emotionally a wreck and kind of feel like 
I need to still make up for what I didn't do during that time because I couldn't, because I was meeting my daughter, learning to breastfeed with her, staying up all hours of the night, making sure she's safe. And that's just a little window of a couple weeks of, of, of the last year, but it was a real test for me and one that I don't think I particularly passed or failed, but certainly struggle with still. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you know, I was just kind of thinking about that first text that comes in and that, you know, you, you answered it to begin with, you know, that that's the kind of job that you have, that there's certain things, especially right now that can't really be unanswered, even, you know, during a time, you know, like childbirth Mm -hmm. and, um, the fact that you were able to kind of make room for that through that process up to a certain point speaks, I think, you know, volumes about how committed you are. Because I'm not sure that you actually had to do that. Maybe I don't know the job well enough, but you know, it's it's probably more about your passion for the people and for justice and for your work that, you know, has you feeling like you need to stay engaged. You know, I mean, I, I see people who take paternity leave and, you know, turn their, um, you know, auto signature on and literally don't respond to, you know, email or messages, you know, and and we're not talking about the same thing here, you know? Um, so I think it just says how committed you are. I think, I mean, is that kind of, you know, and, and maybe you're not going to be as quick to say this about yourself, but I'll say it and then you can just say yes or no. But, you know, I, I think it just, it shows how kind of like embodied this work is for you, that there isn't a separation really between work and life. And, and sure, there is to some degree, I guess in your case, like it starts at, you know, at, at, at um, you know, a, um, at a seven centimeters, I guess, or something, right? You know, like that's where that that's your line, you know. But um, you know, is that true? I mean, is that just kind of how you view what you do, and as just kind of who you are, and it's really just one? Yeah, I do think it's it's really um, fluid with the rest of life, and I also think that a failure to create any boundaries would ultimately kind of doom my longevity in, in, in this work. Because while I'm passionate about it, everyone has human limitations. And so I do need, I, I do need to ensure I have some boundaries uh, and create them in part, partly for my kids too, because there's so much work that happens on your phone, right? And, and when you're a public official, you're being like added all the time. And if I didn't park that, I would never be able to fully be there for my kids, which is just the most important thing. And so I, I, I do think that y- you live the work when you're passionate about your career. And especially when it's like public facing, public oriented, you live the work. But I always do remind myself that, that boundaries have to, to come into play. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so tell me as we start to wrap up, What's the future look like? What What's the future for you? And what's the future for Columbus? Well, I will tell you, I've learned a great deal over this last year, as I think probably 
everyone you talk to would say. And part of what I've learned um, is really, this sounds so stupid, but like I've learned a lot more about how to use my voice. Um, I really don't mean for that to sound cliched, but the stakes have been so high this last year. And um, on several key um, police reform related issues, um, I've been kind of a minority voice, but I've been super, super loud. And I think that I changed the conversation or moved it in a direction that's actually um, where a majority of Columbus wants to see, or at least where justice is on our side. Like, let's get real that when the Voting Rights Act passed um, mid 20th century, if you'd actually had everyone in America vote on it, it very well would might not have passed. That mm-hmm. was the judgment of elected officials who sometimes have to see which side justice is on and do it. Um, and it's not just about, you know, putting your finger up and seeing which way the wind is going. It's, it's, it's bold and it's, and it's judgment. So I've learned a lot about that. And, um, and I, I hope to have added something to the, the conversation. I've learned a lot about uh, being being annoying is okay sometimes if it's going to move things down the line. I, I had an initiative that I'm really proud of. My focus coming out of the pandemic is how are we helping real people? Um, you know, like how are we getting resources to real people, real families in our city? And one of the things we worked on was an emergency financial assistance program with Columbus Urban League. I championed that. I formulated it. My office got it done. And it has helped nearly a thousand families when they need it the most um, and help them avoid financial ruin simply for having a COVID diagnosis. That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been really annoying to a lot of people about the need to get it done. Mm. So I've learned those things in terms of what's next. Um, I've just, I think I have a better ability to check into my own gut instincts on stuff. Mm. As we build back from this pandemic, we have to confront a newer, better normal. Um, and I think that's what has to be next for Columbus. We talked a lot before the pandemic about how while our prosperity is growing as a city, so is our poverty rate and how that was untenable. Um, But I think now, like we know better and we have to do better. After the 2010 recession, things started getting better, except for for about a third of families. We cannot let that happen again coming out mm-hmm. of this downturn. Um, we just, we owe it to everyone um, to, to be on the side of those who need us the most mm-hmm. um, and to push that direction. And for me personally, again, I just hope, just like I you know, wanted to be at mock trial, like I just hope to be additive, right? I hope to be championing the right things and winning the debate on it. Yeah, well, there's no question you're additive. So, um, you know, I think you can probably always throw the bar out there and kind of see what needs to be done. And that's part of your job, you know, and, and you don't even have to look, people are telling you, um, you know, all the time you're seeing it, you know, firsthand that there's so much work to be done. Um, and you know, a lot of work has been done. You guys have done a lot. I mean, uh, unbelievable amount. I think that story of you in childbirth, you know, really says just how much you guys have been doing that, you know, not a, not a minute was taken off. Um, even when, you know, it really very easily was justified to say the least. So, um, a lot has been done. And so for that, you know, I thank you. And I think you guys are doing a great job. I love you know, I think I said this at the beginning, but I love, love seeing the passion, that activism, that, you know, there are issues 
that, you know, we live in a city and, and, you know, I can't really speak for our state, but we do live in a city where people care about transformative change and that um, there's a aspiration for things to be done in the way that I'll say is right. You know, now that's debatable and I know, and, and, and my views on right might be a little bit more aligned with yours and some other people might be listening and saying, you know, we're making huge mistakes. But personally, I think some of these things are pretty clear and that people collectively need to be uh, thriving and, um, and many are not and that there's certain injustice that has to be fixed and that you and your colleagues are really focused on fixing that. And, you know, I think we're really fortunate as a city to have that kind of mindset and that kind of leadership. So thank you. And thank you for taking time to do this. Um, I'll let you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our audience. Well, I, I thank you for the conversation. It was it was really fun. I don't get to like talk this way and reflect all that often because it's do 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 all the time. And you know, I I I can't talk about you know parenthood and motherhood with also without also just plugging the the idea that I think that's where our society is begging for the most reform right now, and in part because when there aren't enough family supports. Um, we are really sabotaging our future and those who bear the brunt of it are women and particularly black and brown women. And so if we want to drive our city forward through an equity lens and really make a difference and build that city that my daughters and my son are going to grow up in, we have to look at putting families' needs first and having the backs of women how are the women doing is like the best question you can ask to understand how a city or a community is doing. And I understand that intimately as a mother, um, but I understand that it's, it's power um, sort of across society. It, we, we've never really tapped into what it means to support mothers and think about what we could be and what we could do if we really do that. Wonderful. Well, let's, let's end there because I don't think that there's anything more important. I agree with you. It does start in childhood. And that is why we start our podcast there too, because I like to kind of highlight, you know, what's happening in these early stages of our life that do really play an impact in us. And, you know, uh, I think you've kind of started with sharing, you know, the unique childhood that you had. And, and the commonality between those two themes that I, I mentioned, you know, between the trauma and the unconditional love is that the guests that we have on all kind of land at a place of seeing how either path serve them perfectly well. Mm-hmm. So I say that because if you're somebody who doesn't have the childhood experience or the parental care and love, you too still can end up at a place of success and, 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 and a place where you're able to thrive in life. But it's a hell of a lot harder. It's a hell of a lot harder. And so this is the, the problem that you know, I, I agree with you does need to be elevated and solved, um, hopefully. So Liz, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to see you. Great to have you here. And um, thanks again. Thank you, Brett. 
Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.